0: First of all, I'd like to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. I feel that they must be said right at the very start for all of us to consider. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let's pray. our Father, so much we're here today to hear you. Father, if if you see fit to use this earthen vessel as a means of speaking to us, I'd be very grateful. Thank you, Father. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. When I was 16 years old, I had known the Lord for a number of years. I came across a verse, Psalm 37:4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. As a 16-year-old, I knew what the desire of my heart was, and I wrote her telephone number <laughs> in the margin next to that verse. <clears throat> I was so sure that that above all things was the desire of my heart and the Bible says he would give it to you well God very wisely didn't and I tried like the dickens to erase that number (laughs) and I had you know how Bible paper is if you press down it'll never come up well finally after 25 years or so I lost the Bible so, uh, at last, good riddance to a, <laughs> to a telephone number. Years passed by in my life and I thought along the way of various things that were the desire of my heart and I prayed for them. There were times that God fulfilled them but many times he didn't. Because God's thoughts are as high High above ours is heaven as above the earth. God knew my heart so much better than I did. And I praise him for that. And God saw fit in his own time and purposes in my life to bring to light the fact that indeed the desire of my life, the desire of my heart, was Jesus. (laughs) More than anything else. And he gave me a desire my heart and i laugh as i think back through all the things that i could have written in the margin of my bible a lot of telephone numbers <laughs> and some of you teenage fellows and girls here know a little bit about that and some of you don't grow out of it for a while <laughs> and then along the way we have all sorts of desires that beautiful home that job we always wanted that position we dreamed of, the desires of our heart. Sometimes he gave them to us, and we found out they really weren't the desire of our heart after all. And we left a little hungry. We're here this week to discover, by the miracle of the grace of God, what indeed is the desire of our heart. And to discover how God has brought that about. I'd like us to go way back in our Old Testaments to Second Chronicles Chapter Six. Second Chronicles Chapter Six. Actually, we'll look just above for a moment into Second Chronicles Chapter 5. Solomon has built this glorious temple. Gold by the ton, it seems, and silver and bronze and all the precious things of the world he could gather. And at last, in chapter 5, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the temple that he has built. All the priests have come and have gathered together and have sanctified themselves, verse 11. And then as the Ark has been placed in the Holy of Holies, Then verse 12, all the Levitical singers, Asaph and Haman and, you know, I didn't read these out loud. I'll have to look again. (laughs) Jehuthin, whatever, and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen and cymbals and harps and lyres, standing east of the altar and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison with the trumpets. And the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and glorify the Lord And when they had lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they had praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house of the the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Unbelievable. What an amazing moment in history. Certainly this should be seen as the high point, the climax of all the old covenant ministry of God with his people, when the glory of God fills the temple. And then Solomon comes forward. He's built a special platform, he refers to it in verse 13 of chapter 6, and he gets up on this platform and then he kneels on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And spreads out his hands toward heaven and he begins to pray he reminds God of his covenant and then as he thinks of God and his covenant he is reminded of the infinity of God and we have one of the greatest statements of the greatness of God in verse 18 he says but will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth could it be God that you could dwell here behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee How much less this house which I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication. And then he begins to make requests. At a a point highest, it would seem, in all the Old Testament, of the presence of the glory of God, of great joy, of great expectation, we should expect a prayer of great expectation of great expectation in terms of the power of God and the victory of God's people, and men and women, we don't find it. Let's look at what he prays. Verse 21, Listen to the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place from heaven. Hear thou and forgive. Forgive. Verse 22, if a man sins against his neighbor. Verse 23, hear thou from heaven and act and judge. Verse 24, if thy people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee. Verse 25, then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel. Verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against thee and they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sins When thou dost afflict them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sins of thy servant. Verse 28, if there is a famine in the land. Jump way down to verse 30. Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place and forgive. Way down to verse 36. When they sin against thee, for there is no man who does not sin, and thou art angry with them and dost deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. Look down to verse 38. If they return to thee with all their heart, then jump to verse 39, then hear from heaven, from thy dwelling place, their prayer, their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people who have sinned against thee. And much to our surprise as we read this prayer of solomon's it's a prayer expecting failure it's expecting the repeated cycle of sin and cleansing and sin and cleansing and sin and cleansing cleansing. solomon prayed the prayer of failure If we translated this prayer into contemporary language in our our circumstances in which you and I live, the prayer would go something like this. Father, as a teenager, uh, Lord, when I uh, lose perspective and slip morally, Lord, please forgive. Uh, Lord, when I marry the wrong girl, and make a mess out of my life. Lord, please forgive. Lord, when I cheat or use drugs, Lord, please forgive. Or a housewife, Lord, when I spend too much time watching daytime TV (laughs) serials, Lord, please forgive. When I gossip too much, Lord, please forgive. Or to you men, us men, Lord, when I uh, when I cheat a little on my income tax, Lord, no, every man sins, Lord. Please forgive. Lord, you know how hard my marriage is, Lord. <laughs> Lord, when I get that divorce and start all over again, Lord, please forgive. Lord, you know how hard it is, Lord. Please forgive. Lord, I'll come to you with all my heart. Lord, please forgive. I'd like you to turn to another great intercessory prayer. This is a prayer of intercession. It's a prayer of the King of Israel for his people. And it's a prayer expecting failure. Turn with me now to a prayer you know so well, John 17. And the difference is absolutely amazing. Jesus is soon to leave his disciples, He's soon to go to the cross. And he prays this tremendous intercessory prayer for his disciples, and not only for his disciples, but he says, for all those who will believe on me through them. I think we'll start reading in verse 11. Notice what Jesus prays, what his expectation is. Father, I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy words, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I am thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. What a prayer! It's a prayer expecting no failure. No failure. It's a prayer expecting those who would follow him would keep his word and would so live before the world that the world would know that the Father had sent Jesus. And men and women, something tremendous happened between Second Chronicles 6 and the circumstances Jesus is talking about in John 17. What's the difference? The Bible teaches us that we move at this point from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And it's as radically different as darkness is from light. It isn't just in John 17 we find this positive perspective, this expectation of victory in the part of God's people. It is all the way through the New Testament. And I chose just a few passages and I don't think we'll take time to turn to them but you think of the way Colossians chapter 3 begins. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above for Christ sitteth at the right hand. Philippians chapter 1 verse 10 so that you may approve things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless till the day of Christ. Hebrews 13 in that great benediction he says now the God of peace who brought from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And then he says these words, equip you in every good work to do his will. What an expectation of holiness. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I think of that intercessory prayer Paul prays in Ephesians 1. Turn there with me for just a moment. You see, Paul Paul had a a relationship in a sense like Solomon. Solomon was the one to whom his generation looked for leadership, for direction, for counsel. Paul was that person to his generation. Yet as Paul thinks of those who would follow him this is what he prays verse 16 he says i do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his, of his might, which he wrought, brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head of all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all that was paul's prayer that was his intercession for his people it was an expectation of success you see this picked up and we won't turn there but as you browse through first corinthians when paul is confronted with the sins and the failures and the neglect of these people the church in Corinth? Does Paul approach those problems as though, well, these are the things that happen to God's people and we just sort of have to stick with it and confess your sins, you people of Corinth. And every time you fail, pick yourself up and confess your sins once again. No, not at all. When Paul confronts the people in Corinth, he says, what's going on? You've forgotten who you are. You're acting like mere men. Why don't you know the saints will judge the angels? <laughs> <laughs> you think in that exciting fourth chapter of Acts, when the early church felt its first sting of persecution, you see, if the context, if God's purposes and his 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 resources were like Solomon's for his people. That would be about the time the church would say, Lord, we're going to fail. Lord, please forgive us when we get too scared to stand for Christ. Lord, please forgive us when we start to compromise. And yet when that early church got together and they prayed with one voice to God, they said, Lord, just grant us boldness. Lord, just, just give us boldness, Lord, that we may speak your word. No complaints. No expectation of failure. Lord, give us boldness. And the place where they were was shaken by the Holy Spirit and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went out and spoke the word with boldness. Praise the Lord. Lord. This miracle, men and women, is what we're going to be talking about this week. What actually has happened that has made the difference? What has taken place? And I suppose our answer would be, well, it's Christ. He came and separated past from future history with a cross. That back in the old covenant, they could look ahead to Christ and they could look ahead to forgiveness. And we look back at Christ and we look back knowing He has forgiven us. And there seems to be a great number of God's people in the world today that say that the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is a distinction between looking ahead to forgiveness and looking back to forgiveness. And that's all the farther they go. And I don't for a moment want to cast a shadow in forgiveness. Paul talks about it over and over again. So glad that God's forgiven. But Paul never stops there. And Paul tells us, no, in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was something more than just forgiveness. It was life. A whole new dimension of life. You see, if, if being saved and becoming a Christian is all wrapped up in the issue that I am forgiven. Whereas the Old Testament believer, well, he was forgiven, but there was that year-by-year reminder, that year-by-year day of atonement, the repeated blood sacrifices. And now Jesus has died once and for all, and the forgiveness is all taken care of. He's forgiven us all our trespasses, the Scriptures say. If that is the essence of where I stand today, then you see the question people ask Paul, hypothetically at least, well, if that's so, Paul, let's sin all the more. Because there's so much grace available. And Paul's answer to that in Romans chapter 6 was, hey, wait a moment becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is not only forgiveness becoming a believer in Christ is becoming a person you never were before becoming alive to God in a fresh way that no one has ever known before is it just new power that comes with a new covenant no it's more of the new power oh it's power But it's more than power. It wasn't just that disciples had more boldness than they ever had before. That was true. But they looked at things differently than they ever looked before. They evaluated life differently. Their whole list of priorities changed. Why? Because they weren't the same anymore. It wasn't just the same person, forgiven and empowered. They were different people. Forgiven and empowered, but different people. Way, way back in Jeremiah's time, way back in 700 B.C., God led that prophet to write concerning the new covenant. And he said, someday God is going to make a new covenant with his people. And in this new covenant, it's not going to be like the old one, the one of Solomon's day, a covenant which they broke. But this is the new covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to change them inside. It won't be just that my law will be exterior, where they can come and look at my law and then endeavor to obey it. I'm going to write my law inside of them. I'm going to change their very nature. I will write my law on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me. And I think though that might mean several things I'm sure one thing it means is that there would be such a witness of the knowledge of God in one's very heart that you don't need to go around to other people to say will you please tell me about God. Even as John says you have the unction of the Holy One and you need not that any man teach you. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sins I will remember no more you know I think I I can't imagine a more electric moment than in the upper room when Jesus is gathering with his disciples and they've finished dinner and he's broken the bread passed it around and said this is my body and then he takes the cup and for the first time in all of human history The disciples hear words the Jews had longed to hear for 700 years. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's here, disciples. You've waited long enough. You remember remember Daniel? Daniel lived at the end, or the part I'm referring to, at the end of the Babylonian captivity. was probably 90 years of age. And Daniel had just read, been reading in the book of Jeremiah about the new covenant and the 70-year and the captivity because it's all within those few verses. The 70-year captivity is back in Jeremiah 29 and earlier in Jeremiah 25 and the very length of the captivity. And he had figured out, and he realized, well, the time for deliverance is now. And I believe at that point Jeremiah, Daniel anticipated, well, it would seem as though now that the captivity has come to an end and it's time for God to deliver us, that perhaps this is the moment when all the new covenant realities will be ours. And I assume that was a reasonable thing for Daniel to expect in view of the context in which Jeremiah described the coming of the New Covenant. It would be an after they had been scattered, and they would come back to the Lord. And so we find Daniel going to prayer. He prays with such earnest zeal. He prays a prayer out of failure of his people. And then Daniel says, Lord, oh, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive, Lord. Please, he doesn't say these words, but I think this is on his mind. Lord, bring the new covenant. Bring the dream to reality. And then the angel comes and says those words. I think that must have broken Daniel's heart. The angel comes and says, Daniel, 77s are yet to run. And Daniel goes to his grave and never sees the new covenant. He aches so much to realize. And now, Jesus with his disciples says, Disciples, this is it. This is it. All heaven must have (laughs) paused. This is the moment when human beings would become citizens of heaven, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, new creation. God's workmanship, his masterpieces. And so we read on and we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and Paul says, We are ministers of the new covenant. We're ministers of it. Oh, it's here. Let me turn to that passage. He says, You know, our ministry is not just tablets of stone anymore, but now it's something carved into the heart not with ink, but by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Verse 4, And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then he goes on and talks about the fact that as we behold in the mirror the face of Christ, we're transformed into his image from glory to glory by the self-same Spirit. He talks about having this treasure in earthen vessels. These earthen vessels, these mortal bodies become treasures in which, become the containers for the treasure of the very life of our Lord Jesus. The New Covenant. We're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to focus on this marvelous miracle of what has happened that makes it possible for the deepest desire of your heart as a believer, the desire that perhaps you haven't even discovered yet, it's there, for that desire to be realized in your life. You see, it's because of that. Turn with me to Colossians 3. It's because of that that Paul could talk about all the things we should put off and all the things we should put on. Verse 9, he says, Do not lie one to another. No, let's see. Verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. Put off from your mouth. And uh, for earlier in verse 5, he says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Why put them off? And in essence, Paul says, Because they don't belong to you anymore. It's like a wardrobe, and in it are hanging all these types of clothing. And I sort of thought, that's my wardrobe. Aren't I basically just a forgiven sinner? If I'm just a forgiven sinner, those are the things that I kind of like to wear. They're sins. And I guess a forgiven sinner should like sin. And Paul says, wait a minute, that wardrobe isn't yours anymore. Why? (laughs) Well, because you're a new person, and the old person is gone. Gone. You put on a new self. And so he says, let me show you the wardrobe that belongs to you. Verse 12. And so as those who've been chosen of God, holy, that's who you are, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Put them on. Why, Paul? Well, they're yours. And not only that, they fit. The other ones don't fit anymore. If you try to wear the others, they'll look all floppy. They don't belong. They don't fit. These fit. By the way, over that wardrobe is your name. They're yours. They deserve to be worn. I think it's that same way in that list of the spiritual armament in Ephesians chapter 6. Put them on. Why? Because they belong to you. They need to be worn. That's your wardrobe. It's befitting of who you are. You know, I was amazed. I guess I maybe had thought of this before, but it seemed fresh to me. Way back in Isaiah 59, God talks about putting on the wardrobe of Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, He puts it on. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. He doesn't list it all, but enough that we can be sure that when Paul is writing in Ephesians 6, he's thinking of this passage. And he, that is God, Isaiah 59, verse 17, and and God put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as with a mantle. You see, the helmet of salvation is befitting of God to wear and the breastplate of righteousness is befitting of God to wear. And I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. And Paul says they're befitting for you to wear. Put them on. Amen. Oh, men and women, there's something exciting in discovering the implications of being born again. And I don't know you people. I know hardly anybody here. There may be some of you here that are never, have never even received Christ as Savior and Lord. There may be some of you who have known Christ for years. And you've been very grateful for forgiveness, and praise God you have. Praise God you know of forgiveness. You know that cleansing of the blood of Christ. But oh, there's something more. And it isn't for some select few. It isn't for some unique little group within the body of Christ. It's for the whole family of God. Way back, uh, well, it was when I was a minister of youth, and uh, my wife and I lived in a hilltop in the little town of Vista in Southern California, and one day there swished past the window outside our kitchen a black-and-white blur. At first, we didn't know what it was, and we again and this time we focused on it and we discovered it was a little black and white ragtag puppy dog raced across the grass and around the corner. Dirty, straggly little dog. Well, we felt sympathy for it, so we went out and called it and it wouldn't come. We put food down for it and he wouldn't come as long as we were there. Finally we went inside and peeked out the window and a little dog with his tail between his legs come up oh so slow. He was so scared. He was out of place. He didn't belong. He was an intruder. Then he would eat and then his tail between his legs he'd scurry off into the bushes and hide. The days went by. Gradually, when we would go out and call him, he would at last sit down way across the driveway and cock his little head and look. But he wouldn't come until we went inside. It just wasn't right for him to come. He was a stray. Nobody loved him. He was worthless. Nothing there. We would hurt him like others would hurt him. One day, my wife and I were standing in the back steps and the food was on the floor, ground in front. A little puppy with his cocked head was off on the side. And we called him. We, we, by the way, we gave him the name Hurricane because he zipped around so fast. <laughs> so we called him Hurry. Come on, hurry. Hurry, we really love you, little pup. Hurry, it's all right. Somehow, He understood. And in two or three huge leaps, hurry, bounced across the pavement and jumped right into my arms. Many women... I think it's possible for us to be thankful we're saved. And know we're going to go to heaven when we die. And be grateful for forgiveness. But somehow stand back a ways because if my concept of myself is that I'm a forgiven sinner and I'm simply going to fail and fail and fail and fail again, really I can't get too close to God. He's so holy and I'm so impure. God says, David, come. David, you're a royal child of mine. And I cock my head and look at God. No. Positionally, maybe it's true. Maybe that's the way you see me, Lord. But that's not the way I am. (laughs) God says, David, it is. You're just not looking deep enough. David, trust me, the miracle of new birth is higher than any thought any man ever thought. For my thoughts are always higher than man's thoughts. David, the miracle of being born again is big enough so you can jump right into my arms and be at home.